Well, tonight we move into defining some facets of our Christian walk. We have been working on that for a little while, and uh, out of the foundation of the liberty that we have very carefully, Paul and the Lord has very carefully uh, established for us in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice and the fulfillment of the law, and thus we are free in Christ. And what does that mean now in our Christian walk? We've seen what it means theologically, and we're going to have some theology tonight as well in conjunction with living it out. Um, but we are going to um, really look more to the practical end of things. Without this, um, if it had ended somewhere early on in chapter 5, we could easily see many say, well, I can just live however I like. And even with last chapter and a half of Galatians, we still have people saying that. I'm free to live however I like. And that's really uh, not the drive and not the intention and not really the reality of what it means to be free in Christ. It is a matter of being free from the law, free from sin, and uh, those should not drive us toward wanton uh, self-interest, but really toward service and ministry and righteousness and truth. And so we're going to look at uh, now what is it that's going to uh, define us as believers and uh, make us recognizable. We saw the, the principle last week. The principle was that the, the parameter, the boundary of our liberty is our love, our love for God and our love for one another. And, there, and both of those are entailed there, and Paul has focused certainly on loving one another, um, they cannot be dis, uh, disassociated from one another. Um, and so our love for God, our love for one another is the boundary of our liberties. So in law, uh, they talk about, well, your liberties end where someone else's begins. Um, and so, you know, I, I can swing my fists around as much as I want. I'm not breaking a law until I violate your space. Um, well, in the... Christian life, that liberty is bound not by where your rights begin, but really where your needs begin. Where I see your needs is where my liberty is confined. And again, uh, this is the calling of God for our life, is that I look and I say, well, this is not best. Uh, This behavior, this activity, this speech, these attitudes, uh, they are only self-serving, they are only self-gratifying. Uh, they can injure, damage, uh, and even destroy others, and therefore I will not participate in them. Though I may have the liberty to do so, I will not engage in that. And I do not have to say that, well, can you find me a Bible verse where it says that that is sin? Uh, it, it came out right after the Super Bowl the other week, and it's. I had several friends that uh, were very concerned about the Super Bowl quarterback who has an apparent very strong uh, statement that at a certain age he received Christ as his Savior, um, saying his response was, well, now I'm going to go drink a lot of beer. And boy, what a bunch of interchange on the, on the well, is he a Christian? Is he not a Christian? Um, well, it's not sin. It doesn't sit it, well... And then um, it comes down to the fact that 
you're a public figure, if you're a believer, um, what defines righteousness is not whether you can go to a Bible verse that says, is it a sin to drink lots of beer? And, of course, everyone throws out the two or three verses there, Jesus turning water into wine and Paul's instruction to Timothy and says, see, it's okay. Um, well, no, it's not okay. And I'm going to tell you why it's not okay is because all of your the children of America are looking at this individual as someone to look up to and people in our churches looking up to it. His interest, because he owns a couple of distributorships in Louisiana of that brand, um, his interests were served, but no one else's were. Let's be forthright. And it, was he loving others in stating that? Was he interested um, of all the recovering alcoholics, of all people who have been uh, uh, affected by those that um, uh, that died from drunk driving? Um, and we can look at that and we say, well, you know, uh, first of all, and then the whole idea of you don't drink a lot of beer to just relax. You drink a lot of beer to get drunk. And everyone was pretty much agreed that drunkenness is obviously a sin because the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine, word, and success. So we do have a verse for that, but, uh, and of course we have all the ones that wine is a mocker. But we have all these individuals, and we had the whole extreme in a lot of the discussion. Those who said, well, he can't possibly be a Christian um, because because of this, um, and then he talks about God, not in specific terms. He's talked about his beer in specific terms, but not as God. So it's the man upstairs. That's how he referred to God. It was the man upstairs. Um, but when it comes to his beer, he can tell you exactly which brand he's going to use. Um, and so, uh, oh, he can't be a Christian. And uh, and others are saying, although he's a wonderful person, he's a wonderful testimony, and and uh, you know, and there's and you can't ever put a verse on to say it isn't sin. Uh, well, it becomes sin when we are self-serving and not considering others. Even things that there is no verse in Scripture on it. There is no verse that you will find in Scripture that says, Thou shalt not eat meat. In fact, Israel had to eat meat before God as part of their worship. I always like to point that out to people. Um, so you have a problem with God telling people to eat meat in his presence. Um, you have a problem with that. Um, because, and, but uh, Paul saying, you know, if that's an issue with somebody, then I'm going to love them and I'm not going to invite them over and, and, you know, serve up a big rack of anything. I'm just going to not do it. I don't need to press that issue with them. And, uh, and so the parameter of our behavior and the parameter of our liberty um, isn't, well, do I have a Bible verse that says that's sin? It's not always that way. And we're going to look at the list and we're going to see that he says these are the hateful, these are the, the ways we used to live. But the parameter is our love for others. Are we thoughtful of their needs? And he even wraps it up in the statement of thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. Are you really engaged in that because you're thinking of others, or are you just fulfilling your own desires, your own interests, your own uh, uh, lusts? What, what is it? And so now we're going to look, well, now that we have that boundary, where and what, by what means do we, do we uh, exercise that liberty within that boundary? Okay, I'm being loving toward people around me, and I'm not viewing that as a 
straitjacket on me, but I'm using those as opportunities to minister. So what do I, how do I do that? What does it look like? And so we're going to come into verse 20, uh, verse 16, sorry, not 26, verse 16 of chapter 5 of Galatians, and we're going to find some instruction in this respect. And before we do so, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word before us and the liberty that we do have in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Lord, we do pray that you might give us insight and uh, understanding of your word, but also a tenderness toward it that we might be willing to bring it into our lives, our hearts, uh, and it might... Uh, Transform us and conform us to the image of your Son. And we pray your help in all of that, as you promise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, he says this in, in the verse, I say this, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And so that's his very simple and direct instruction, that if you want to figure out, uh, well, within the context of loving others, uh, is it a minefield that I'm involved in? Uh, and, and certainly sometimes it seems like it becomes like, and if, for anyone that's the pastor, he, he, sometimes you feel like you're in a minefield all the time. If you just say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, or don't do enough, you get lambasted because uh, you didn't meet others' expectations. Well, what is it that, that directs me? And, and this goes along with what we talked about this morning, that it's not within a man. Uh, while we have the feet and the legs to walk with, it is not within us to direct our path to the right direction. And uh, it's not within man to do that. And so where do we, what do we depend upon to give direction to our steps? And Paul here says, walk in the Spirit. Kind of interesting, both messages this morning and this evening, talk about your walk. How do men walk? Uh, well, we walk in the Spirit. And so Paul's focus isn't on trying to say, well, what's the limits by um, not going there, not going there? But rather, the limit is your love for others, and the, the direction for that activity is a very positive statement. Walk in the Spirit. Let the Spirit lead you. It is not for man to set that for you, because um, we're going to fail. If I set it out for you, it's going to be inadequate. It's going to uh, not be appropriate in every environment, in every setting. We can lay out these rules and, and say, oh, you know, you violate these rules. Well, those are men's rules, and, and we tend towards that. We gravitate towards that because it's very, you know, I, here's a list of rules. I can write them down on paper, and here it is. It's very different to say, I'm walking in the Spirit. That's, oh, now, you know, there's a dynamic there that is hard to put your thumb on. And, and um, we have to be careful in this respect as well, because some people say, oh, the Spirit led me to do this and this and this, and it's going to be things that are on this list of things that says the Spirit will never direct you into this. So um, this can be abused as well. But what we find is the legalist wants to say, here's the man-made list, uh, and sometimes they even use the God-made list out of uh, the Old Testament and misunderstanding its purpose, um, and Paul says, no, the, the way of man needs to be directed by not the rules of men, but by the Spirit of God. And let's let that Spirit drive us. Are we Spirit-led? Are we walking the Spirit? We're going to look at this relationship between us and the Holy Spirit a little bit tonight. 
And there's a lot of corollary passages, of course, in God's Word to this. And uh, we're not going to certainly be able to encompass them all, um, but uh, we're going to reference several of them. Uh, But there's one facet of this that we want to talk about, and that is uh, your part in it. Uh, The Spirit is going to be faithful, and He is present in all who believe. Uh, That uh, baptism of the Spirit, of that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is promised from the time that we receive Christ as our Savior, when we... Um, repent of our sin and 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 uh, place our trust in Him. He says that He will give us that gift of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And we might say, "Well, now it's easy street. I can just follow the Holy Spirit." The problem is, is that God does even in that condition, while you have surrendered your will to Him, which is a big facet of your salvation, it is not a singular act that never needs to be repeated. You need to repeatedly surrender your will to him over and over and over and over again on a hour-by-moment basis. So this walking in the Spirit is a continual act, um, but there are some hurdles in the way of walking in the Spirit. And so here you've got this race before you, and you've got some opposition. You've got a wind in your face, sort of. And so you've got some things you've got to deal with, and the best way to deal with them is to recognize they exist and then to uh, equip yourself to walk in the Spirit and not in the lust of the flesh. And he's going to uh, see the idea of fleshly living as the opposite, the counter to walk in the Spirit. So let's look at verse 17, and we're going to see some of this uh, played out and uh and then exemplified later on in the verses later on here in this passage. It says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. For the works of the flesh are evident, which are... We're going to stop right there. Jump down to verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is, and we're going to stop right there, and we're going to jump down to verse 24. I don't want to handle those lists yet. It says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoke one another, envying one another. And then he talks about, when we get in chapter 6, what are we going to do with people who aren't successful at that at all? <laughs> what happens when they're overtaken, when uh, the flesh is winning that battle? So he, he lays this out, and, and there is obviously, within the context of our liberty, there are two principles at work. There is that which is godly, and there is that which is fleshly. And they are in opposition to each other. And so those that would contend that they can handle both of them together, um, error, because they don't understand the nature of them, are complete opposites. And, and I find a lot of Christians in living out their Christian life don't view this as a warfare sufficiently enough. We view this sometimes as a struggle, maybe. Uh, and I'll, Pastor, I'm struggling with this. I'm like, well, it's, it's sin. It's not a struggle. It's a war. And you're losing badly. Or they'll just say, um, well, you know, you say this, but... And, I, and as soon as they say, I... Uh, now, we, where are we going to go with this? Okay, because now you're not, even rec- you're not even recognizing it as a struggle. You're not even recognizing that these are two opposites that cannot 
uh, come together and dwell in the same place in harmony. Uh, there is no place for these. So the first thing we need to recognize is that we are at war. We, there is a battle going on, that these are working against each other, that the purposes of the Spirit are, when they are at work on you, will seek to drive against the fleshliness that is in us. And the fleshliness will drive to try to subdue and subordinate the Spirit within you. And that's why when Thessalonians says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. You can quench Him? I thought He was Almighty God. Well, He is. And that's going to come into play here in a moment. Um, But the Bible says, don't quench Him. And don't resist Him. Two instructions that are pretty uh, strong, which seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit isn't going to override you. He is going to engage as far as you allow Him to. And so we have an instruction not to quench Him, that you can subdue Him and uh, make His work and His presence in your life a minuscule thing. And... To go back to our example at the beginning of, uh, of the quarterback, um, I could very easily try to say, well, this can't be a Christian because, as many have tried have said, and, and my first tendency is to say that, um, but there's also the strong probability, given um, that he has made it these statements, that he could be a believer that has quenched the Holy Spirit in his life to such a degree that there is very little evidence of it. And the struggle for us looking at that is that there's a very fine line. (laughs) And it's hard for us to say. And whenever we get to that fine line of whether you have a believer who is quenching the Holy Spirit and not walking in the Spirit, or we have an unbeliever who is making a false profession, uh, boy, you do not want to get close to that line. Can I just say that? Um, Don't try to walk that line because people like me are not going to defend your faith. I am not going to come to say, I'm going to applaud this wonderful Christian man. I will never do that given how close you are to this line that I can't myself distinguish whether you are a believer quenching the Holy Spirit and living in the flesh or whether you are an unbeliever making a false profession for Christ. Why would you ever want that to to be a question in people's mind? Why would you ever want your public declarations, I mean, this is huge, millions of people, hundreds of millions of people watching this, why would you want there to be any question in anyone's mind? You might say, well, my relationship with God is my relationship with God, and whether you judge it or not isn't important to me or isn't the definition of it. Well, and of course, the big thing is don't judge. (laughs) Boy, they love that verse. Um, Don't judge, don't judge. And I said, well, you know that everyone applauding this guy is also judging him, right? What a great Christian man. That's also a judgment. So I kind of would like to go into all those places. Well, don't judge him. What do you mean? I said he's a Christian man. Yeah, don't judge him. We only use it for the negative. We never use it for the positive, which is kind of lopsided. But uh, we come to uh, that example, and it's like, 
do you really want to get to that point? And again, it's, it's the, the problem is that where's the evidence of your faith beyond your declaration? And so when your life doesn't line up with your profession, you make people like me have to look at you and say, well, I would never put you out there as an example. I would, and all these groups have him coming in and speaking, and the same thing we talked about politicians a while ago, coming into our churches. Just because you make this profession of faith, I look at your life and I go, you're not sitting down in my pulpit. You know, you're not going to get an audience here because they don't correlate and you've come too close to that line that I can't distinguish you. I can't definitively say, man, this is a man of God. I can't say that. And that is what you want to avoid. And the first step to avoiding that is to recognize this is a war. That we're not dealing with... uh, Two that can get along. We're not dealing with two things that can cohabit um, with that peacefully. They just can't. You, as much as you try to manipulate God's word, you can never make your sin and the Holy Spirit agree. You just can't. But there are a lot of Christians are trying, and they're trying to say this isn't a war, but it is a war, and it is perpetual until we are out of this flesh. And so the first thing you need to recognize is that you are a soldier and the, you have two competing interests in you. One is full of power and the one has no power but what you lend it. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. And the spirit is certainly power. You say, well, the most powerful one will always win. No, that isn't how it goes in war, don't you know? The most powerful doesn't always win. We think that should happen, but it doesn't happen that way. The flesh is dead. And yet we, because it says later on verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we have crucified the flesh. That is that we have put it to death. By trusting in Christ, um, it is crucified. It is dead. Um, The problem in the Christian walk is that it's still present. You might say dead but present. Of course. Dead does not equal absent. It has not been eradicated. It is just powerless in itself. And this is really the the big picture of your Christian liberty, is that the flesh is dead. It really can't rear itself up and do anything unless you go to it. It's not coming to you anymore. And this is my... Big illustration where at camp I would always drag out a roadkill and the kids go crazy. You, you know, I, I drive and drive and drive around camp property whenever I'm speaking at camp and using this illustration to find a roadkill. And uh, the best one was the little bunny that was roadkill because I try not to kill things to do it. But here's roadkill. And I say, okay, we got this dead bunny. Here it is. And I bring it right into the service. Here it is. Can it, are any of you afraid it's going to jump at you? Are you afraid of any, anything? Is, no, it's dead. But what happens if you take that dead thing and take it out of the little Ziploc bag I have it in and uh, put it in your sleeping bag with you? What happens eventually? It kills you. It kills you. 
And that's what the Romans did to some murderers, is they would tie the victim's body flesh to flesh to them, and as the victim rotted, that rot would infect the perpetrator, and they would rot to death, where we get that idea, from the outside in. Why? Because they made the proximity up against it. So, yes, dead things can kill you, right? Do you really want dead things floating in your water supply? No, you don't want dead things floating in your water supply, right? You don't want dead things um, around you. You just don't want it. On a long-term basis, it's destructive. It'll destroy you. And so dead does not mean gone. So yes, it's powerless, and that's the great work of God, that he has crucified the flesh. Now we have the liberty to walk in the Spirit, but there is still an element there of presence. And that presence... um, is the problem. It gives you a continuing choice. And this is what Paul is trying to address. In our liberty, how do I address this? Well, these old attitudes, these old actions, these old thoughts, they're still there. They have not been eradicated from me. I still remember my sin, even from before I was saved. I was saved pretty young, 10 years old. I was saved. But I still remember my sin. What was I, 12? Oh, sorry. So I remember my sin. But that, and, and so it's still there. And the propensity, the, the certain sins that I uh, keep going back to and, and that are my favorite ones, which are really the ones that I hate the most, but I, uh, they're getting victory over them. It's just, they're tenacious enemies of mine. Um, and how do I deal with that? It's still present The attraction of those is still there because the flesh is still here. And so there's that warfare going on. Well, how are we going to deal with that? Well, the Bible says that walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. What does that mean? You have a choice. The dead thing isn't going to follow you. You're dragging it with you. It's not going to jump on you and pull you down. And I hear people talk about that. Oh, I try to get victory and just rears up and pulls me down. And I'm like, no, it can't do that anymore. You're, you're a Christian. It can't do that. It has been crucified. It, can't, it doesn't reach up and grab you and pull you into sin. That doesn't happen. What happens is you keep going, hmm, and you keep kind of going over there and stroking it, touching it. That's what happens. You're making a choice. Now, if you're an unbeliever, yes, that's, not, that's what it does. It just captivates your mind. You're, you try to do good, and you'll never do it. You'll always go to evil. But even in the believing life, as a believer, you still have the flesh present, though powerless, in and of itself. But it still has some influence. And so you have to make this decision. But look at the decision. First of all, you have a command. Walk in the Spirit. Second command is that you have a wish. At the end of verse 17, second facet of it, you have a wish. There's a war going on so that you end up doing things that you didn't want to do. Paul explains this at length that here's the things I want to do in Romans. Here's the things I don't want to do. And, and as much as I try, I still end up doing things I don't want to do. And then I hate the, the and so there's a choice now. And so you're, 
will is intact. So this isn't God's will. And ultimately, decretal Calvinism always gets you to the point where God, everything's God's fault. Um, and God does, is responsible for everything. Well, you know, it's not the devil made me do it anymore, it's God made me do it. Once you get into decretal Calvinism, because God established everything, every iota of everything that happened in his sovereignty and eternity past. And so we are just going through the motions, really, and God has already set that. Um, no, what we find is a command which is expected to be obeyed, which means you have a choice. And the second thing you find is you have wishes. You know, I have never really come across believers that say, I just wish I could just be a evil, nasty, sinful wretch. That's what I want to be. You know what I encounter from Christians is, well, pastor, I want to, but... I just can't seem to get the victory over the sin. They all say they want to. Okay? And so Paul says, okay, you all want to. <laughs> you don't do the things that you wish. You want, I want to serve God. I want to do right. I want all this. And then there's that nasty three-letter word that comes right after that wonderful declaration, but... And it's right there that I'd like to just say, stop! That's the war. I want to, but. I want to serve the Lord. I want to be faithful at church, but. I go, you're in a war. Please recognize it. You're in a war. Why are you losing? Because you don't recognize it as a war. Because you don't recognize that there are some elements involved here that you need to take action for and against. You need to take action toward the Holy Spirit Walking in the Spirit is a choice. You have to be involved in something. You have to, you have to do something in this, right? You gotta take some steps. The Spirit will steer you, but you gotta be moving. You know, if the Spirit, Spirit's doing this and you're just, there's no accelerator pedal, you're not in the, you're neutral, you're in park, in the gears of your life, the Spirit can steer you as much as He wants, so you're not gonna go anywhere, right? So you're going to have to put yourself in drive. You're going to have to do some walking in the Spirit, which means you're going to walk toward Him. You're going to seek out the Lord, and that's why we tell you, get in, into God's Word, get with God's people, go to church, do these things, but not because that equals a godly life. It's because those are the places where you will be able to, to be drawing near to the Holy Spirit in God's Word, in prayer, with God's people, in church, it, that now the Spirit can lead you in every facet of your life because you are drawing closer to the Spirit. The proximity of your enemy or ally is, is going to determine who wins, not who's more powerful. It's proximity, right? If I'm out of range of this superpower over here of their weapons and this Authority. This entity over here, all they got is a knife, but they're standing right beside me, and the other one is 17,000 miles away. Um, even though they have the superpower of the world, it's the United States military is out there, but this Muslim is right here beside me with a knife in his hand, um, who's going to win? The superpower or the single individual with a knife in his hand, putting it to my throat? It's proximity. And we haven't gotten that figured out. 
We say, oh, you know, God is so powerful and sovereign. If he wanted me to live better, he would just make it happen. Well, you haven't made any effort to get close to him. You haven't even tried for the embassy. (laughs) That's all we really are is an embassy in a foreign land. That's all we are. The church really is just a little embassy. It's a little building. It's a little place. It's not a building. It's a little people that is a, a safe zone in the world where citizens of another world can come and have some level of help. And so by proximity, even though the Spirit has all the power and this one is dead, um, by proximity I have endangered myself. And so what's the first step? Get yourself closer to the Spirit. Walk in that direction. And we know what it takes to walk in that direction. That there's going to be confession, repentance. There's going to be uh, some uh, reading of God's word. I'm going to have to at least take some initiatives here. And it's not enough to just say, oh, I want to, I want to. And I said, well, if you really wanted to, why don't you get yourself out of bed and get to church? Why don't you open, crack that Bible open and start reading it? It's not that hard. Why don't you just shut down the little electronic gizmo? If you want to. So we can all claim that we want to, but the, the fact is, is that there's a war, and you're not treating it as a war. You're not treating your flesh as a dead, stinky thing that you hate and don't want near you. Uh, we bury dead things because we don't want to see them, we don't want to smell them, and we don't want to touch them. Right? Well, do that. Get yourself a distance farther and farther away from that thing. Keep yourself from the proximity. And I think we have some wonderful biblical examples of that, uh, none greater probably than Joseph, who just like, jail is better than here because there's no women in jail trying to trap me and get me to fall morally. And, you know, he's in the house doing his job. The wife comes up and says, lay with me, and he runs for it. He makes separation, proximity. And so we are called to walk in the Spirit. And to help us do that, what Paul's done is given us a couple of lists. These are not extensive lists that are intended to give us everything. These are example lists, including the fruit of the Spirit. I'm pretty sure the fruit of the Spirit is more than just these items. But this is some items that are in the fruit of the Spirit. What is it like to go toward the Spirit? What is it like to go to the flesh? Well, the flesh we should all understand because we all were there. That's why he says the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious to you. Those things that bring guilt in your life are of the flesh. Because you recognize, well, even though they might be legal, even though they might be practiced by other Christians, even though they might even be within the context of your liberty, you know that they do not conform to the number one fruit of the Spirit, which is class, love. Remember I told you, you're not going to find a verse for every sin a Christian can commit because of this principles, not law. We live by the principles of righteousness, which is I am free, and the boundary of my freedom is my love for God, love for one another. 
And so these are examples. These are examples of the flesh which are evident. You already know them, um, but uh, the law is not going to give you success against these. You can try to set down all these laws in your life and discipline yourself and try to live according to these laws, and you'll be frustrated um, because the law isn't going to resolve this. It is the Spirit leading your life that's going to resolve these things, um, and you're going to have to move yourself toward the Spirit and away from the flesh. And so you have a will, and God expects you to use it, and God will hold you accountable for it. And those that want to eradicate the will of men and say that it is dead, or even as a believer that it is really um, determined, those are, those, uh, the word determined is a very strong Calvinistic term. These things are determined. Uh, that means that nothing you choose can change them. And that is nowhere in the Bible. Predestination is not predetermination. Right? Do you know the difference between those two very similar sounding words? Predestination, destiny is the end. God has determined what is the end of those who believe and those who do not believe. Correct? The end of those who believe is what? Eternal life. The end of those who do not believe is punishment. That's what God has predestined. He's predestined. Um, pre, yeah. So they're your destiny. He has not predetermined everything. Very different. The difference between destiny and determination. Well, now it has to be this way because he has determined it. Rather, he is saying, here is where it will end, and now you have some choices <laughs> where which end is going to be yours. So he has made some choices. If you respond, here's what you can plan on God giving. If you do this, here's what you know God will do, because he has chosen to do it. That if you receive his son, you will become his child. God has chosen, has elected you to become children of God. He hasn't elected you to make this choice. He has elected any who make that choice to receive a son to become children of God. Um, please do the... <laughs> we, we really have lost track of grammar and syntax. Um, please uh, revisit some of your... Actually, very few English classes do this now where they diagram sentences. And then you can find out what, you are re- what the Bible is really saying because we throw these words around and we make them say what they don't say. You have a choice. And you're going to have to exercise those choices. But now you have real choice. You have a power, the superpower of the universe, the spirit, now residing in you. Now you have a real choice and you have a real possibility of, complete, of success on a level that, a scale that is, we, we only dream of, really, because it, we really only think it's going to happen in heaven. But the fact is the Spirit of God dwelling within us makes it a very real thing. And now we have put to death the flesh, so that makes that very weak. And now it's only up to us. So the power is available. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, right? So you have a superpower, and you have a dead thing. And now you have a choice. And 
he's going to list it off. He's like, here's what, here's some ideas of what to get away from, to choose against. Because if you start filling your mind, and this really goes along with quenching the spirit in Thessalonians, uh, Philippians tells us that what do you used to meditate on? What are you meditating on? What are you thinking on? What do you, what do you, Focused on, on a regular basis, spiritual things or fleshly things? Well, it's easy to get focused on fleshly things, right? Why? Because that's all you can see, taste, touch. Unless you're setting your eyes on the truth and you're putting yourself in an environment where you're hearing righteousness, um, you're going to be gravitated and pulled to go over, sit down next, lay next to, and cuddle with this dead flesh thing that you have still with you. What does it look like? Well, we all know what it looks like. Immorality. Starts off with a couple of terms of immoral, sexual immorality, uncleanness. It's not just referring to whether you've washed your clothes or taken a shower recently. It is about your mind and your and uh, those things that you are involved in. It's lewdness. Again, um, we have a whole list here. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. I'm going to focus on a couple of them next week uh, because there are several that I think need some addressing um, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. There's doctrine. Um, these are covering a wide uh, swath through your life um, that we want to talk a little bit about next week. Um, and he says those who practice such things, that is not a single event, but rather this is the ongoing nature of your life, are, you're not going to have the kingdom of God. Because if these things are so consistent in your life, then there's no way this thing is dead. It must be alive, which means you don't have the spirit and you don't really have eternal life. You're a lost person. If these things are so attractive to you that you don't even see participating in them as an as a act of violating anything, there's no guilt involved, and you just keep practicing them, and you don't war against them, well, you can't claim to have the Spirit. You, you can't have it both ways. Because they're at war. You know, if you're participating in that, and you don't have that guilt, and you don't have that desire to change that and to reform yourself from that, um, there is no way you're a believer. No way. Because that shows that that's very much alive and well and that there is no powerhouse called the Holy Spirit in your life to direct you and to guide you to victory that you have any choice. And so um, his statement is, about this is if this is consistent in your life and you're going to get up in front of everybody in the universe and say, I'm going to go out and get drunk, um, guess what? You practice that on a regular basis and you glory in that and you don't see the problem, you probably aren't going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And yes, this is a passage I'm studying over the last couple of weeks having to deal with all of this and, and I'm on there trying to engage people a little bit um, in some of these blogs and posts trying to just and sometimes just reading them all and seeing that 
overwhelmingly we have gone into this direction of there's no spiritual warfare going on. It's not sin. It's we shouldn't judge. It's between him and his and his God. And he's a great, wonderful Christian man. What a powerful testimony he has. Um, because faith comes first in every presentation he gives, on and on it goes. And you have a verse like this. If you practice, and in this list is drunkenness, you practice this, if this is the norm for you, and you don't have an issue with it, I mean, there are some practices here that I struggle with, um, but I would never openly glorify them in front of everybody and say, I can't wait to go do this. That really shows a desensitivity to sin. And in fact, in a public venue, knowing all the millions there, I don't care if I lose, well, I don't even know that I'd be invested in that, but but I'm not going to want to expose that I'm doing this kind of thing. Certainly not openly in public and not shouting it out and glorifying it, not if the Spirit of God is within me, not if I recognize it's a war, not if I recognize that these things I am at war against. I am not going to put forward the enemy as a positive thing. I'm going to be ashamed of it. Even if I'm not, even if I'm struggling still committing some of these acts, I'm ashamed of them and I'm warring against them. I'm engaged in the fight. I'm certainly not going to glorify them in public. I might say, pray for me. I really have a desire to go get drunk, but I don't want to because it's sin. Now you're going to have some respect for me. I don't know why you'd bring that up in that interview, but then I'll be able to have a little more confidence and say, well, praise God, he's fighting the fight. And so this is the call of God. Walk in the Spirit. Keep your proximity in that direction, and this flesh cannot reach up and grab you and pull you down. It's when you start gravitating towards it, making choices to quench the Holy Spirit, to resist his work. He'll try to keep you from doing it. We're going to talk a little bit about that next week too, but you'll come over here and latch on, and oh, devastation. And ultimately, what it brings is, are you really a believer now? And you have to really ask that question of yourself. And I don't want that for anybody. And so why are we so adamant and strong in saying, you know, you need to live differently. Um, And people say, oh, you're judging. Yeah, I'm judging um, because I'm trying to save you. And then I always ask them, could you please go visit that passage and see what you're judging about in that passage? Because they aren't about what you think they are. And all this is counterbalanced by a wonderful fruitfulness that God calls us to instead. We're going to study that as well in a couple of weeks. Okay, let's have our prayer. Look, God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word and its power and its truth. But we thank you for the freedom, the liberty that it gives us, the, the uh, power over the flesh that we have. And Lord, uh, we have to admit before you we make some terrible choices. We do disgusting things, choosing to bring dishonor to you by preferring the company 
of vileness. And you have done better for us and deserve better from us. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be responsive and when we have that guilt that we might respond by realizing that uh, we don't surrender. We just need to get closer to the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we thank you for these commands. Help us in our choices. We know you do. Um, and Lord, we're, we see some of our brethren who are failing, who are losing their war in their lives. Lord, help us to uh, have the courage to confront them with it, to challenge them, and uh, to your honor, praise, and glory, and to their deliverance. We praise things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.